Gracious and loving God, as we move closer to the birth of our Lord on Christmas Eve, we pray that we would become people of love as we await that gift of love. And as we talk about Jeremiah today, through the lens of love, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what love means for this world and for our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who hate of it were held guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in their might. Do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth. But let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me for all time, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, never to draw back from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. 
but she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of a greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. For now, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. All right. So we have been studying Jeremiah for several months now and have chosen to wrap this study up by looking at Jeremiah through the lens of Advent and the four themes of hope, preparedness, rejoicing, and love. And of course, love is the culmination of Advent because we believe love came into this world as a flesh and blood person uh, in Mary's womb, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, that God is love, that God became human, that love is not, you know, a good vibe from heaven that God sends our way, but a flesh and blood person that really lived and walked among us, who died and rose again, and who now dwells inside of us through his indwelling spirit. And, you know, this might not seem like it has anything to do with Jeremiah, but uh, if you go to church Sunday morning for Advent 4, uh, the reading is going to be from Romans. It's very, very short. And Paul talks about how there was a mystery and a secret that was long kept hidden, but has now been revealed, right? That's how Jesus is spoken of as this wonderful mystery and secret that has always been there, but it's been hidden and has now been fully revealed. And as people in on that revelation, one of the ways we read scripture is to go back and to have a figurative reading of scripture whereby we look for all the places where Jesus has been hiding all along. And this is not dishonoring to our Jewish brothers and sisters any more than it's dishonoring to our Muslim brothers and sisters. We share texts, but we have different ways of understanding and reading them. And that's just part of what it means to be different and to be in relationship. And so one of the ways Christians have read Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets and the patriarchs is to go back and to find the places where that secret has always been hiding in plain sight. And so we've been doing some of that in this study. A perfect example is a couple of weeks ago, whenever we were talking about Jeremiah's articulation of the new covenant, where he says, you know, God does a new thing, a woman encompasses a man. And of course, the story we heard from Luke for Advent 4 is about a woman encompassing a man in her womb that she gives birth to. 
And this is a literal uh, way of understanding this verse uh, as how the eternal covenant comes into being. Not the only way we could interpret that verse from Jeremiah, of course, but it's kind of a fun way. And so as we think about love and what love has to do with Jeremiah, with the different covenants we've been discussing with the hope of the world, with Advent, with Christmas, I think the first thing we have to say is that love in the Bible is not an emotion. It's not a sentimental thing. Um, that the best word we have for love in Hebrew, I think, is hesed, which is always tied to this concept of covenantal faithfulness. And so in the Old Testament, love, and more specifically God's love, is tied to God's promise to be faithful to God's covenant. It's not an energy. It's not a good vibe. It's about follow through. When God says, even though you forget me, I still remember you, that's love. God doesn't forget us, right? God remains faithful to the covenant. And the reason I think that's important to name is because Jeremiah has been about the covenant. They've gone into exile because they have not been faithful to the covenant. God promises this everlasting covenant. We don't really know what that everlasting covenant is. Uh, if we just stick with Jeremiah, we know it has to do with knowing God intimately, with God giving us his spirit, with having a new heart, with having our heart of stone removed and receiving a heart of flesh. You know, we know all of that, um, but we don't know anything else. And of course, as Christians, we read the ushering in of this everlasting covenant promised by Jeremiah. We, we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus. And that's love, right? God sending Jesus is love because it is the manner in which God is faithful to his covenant. This is the manner in which God says, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to take it so far that instead of giving you a law, that you can break, I'm going to give you my son. And you can break him the way you broke that law. You can nail him to a cross, but I'm so faithful to my covenant, I'm going to just make a joke out of death. I'm going to rise on the third day and bring all of you with me, right? You're going to resist it. You're going to fight it. You're going to misunderstand me, but I'm so faithful to the covenant, I'm going to give you myself. I will give you myself, right? So that's hesed, that's love. And of course, the Greek word for love, there's lots of them, but one of them is agape. And so whenever we talk about the love that Jesus displays, um, it's agape. It is a sacrificial sort of love. And I think it's tied to this word hesed. Two different languages, two different times, two different cultures, but agape love is the love that washes the disciples' feet the night before Jesus' death, agape love. It's a self-emptying love. It's a love that leads to the death of self in order to serve the other. And of course, it's a love that is displayed most clearly on the cross. And so as we go into Jeremiah and we look to find this love hidden, this fulfillment of the covenant hidden in the text, right? The mystery that's now been revealed. We go back and we see where it was hiding all along. 
we look at Jeremiah 2. What does God say? I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. And so God is looking back, and that word is hesed, right? So God remembers that Israel used to have hesed for God, but then, of course, what happened, Israel forgot. And a big part of the story is that even though Israel forgot, God never forgot. And part of what God never forgot was the purpose of Israel, right? So Jeremiah 2, 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Israel was the first fruits, not the whole harvest. The promise was always for the world. The promise was that God would use Israel to bless and to reach the world, right? Israel was the first fruits. That's something they forgot. It's something we all forget. I mean, we're not just picking on one particular people. Um, you are chosen. You're chosen by God. Each one person, each person here is chosen, but you're chosen to be a blessing. You know, if there are those in your life who don't believe, who don't know God, who don't care for God, it's not that you're chosen and they're not. You're the first fruits. And now you got to go and let that harvest extend, right? So God remembers his people, but God also remembers why he calls his people. It's not for their benefit alone. It's for the benefit of the world. And so by the time we get to Jeremiah 9, you know, um, the people have forgotten. So they're boasting in things other than God. Because if you know that you've been chosen as the first fruit to bless the world, that is your boast. But they're not doing that. They're boasting in their wisdom. They're boasting in their might. They're boasting in their wealth. And so Jeremiah says this, let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, right? Let them boast and that the one who acts with hesed, with steadfast love, has called them. That is what you boast in. And Paul says something very similar in Galatians. He says, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in the cross of Christ because for Paul, the cross is God's acting with hesed, God's acting with steadfast love. So when Jeremiah says God acts with steadfast love and when Paul says Jesus dies on the cross, you know, Paul is just interpreting that act of steadfast love. For Paul, Jesus's death on the cross is the ultimate display of steadfast love, and that's what Paul boasts in. And so there's this invitation in Jeremiah 9 to repent, right? To remember, to stop boasting in all the worldly things we tend to boast in, and rather to boast in who God is and the fact that we are his people. And that's picked up in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah writes, they shall be my people. You know, notice he doesn't say they might one day be my people. Jeremiah doesn't say they should be my people. Uh, Jeremiah doesn't say um, they could one day become my people, but rather they shall be my people. It's a very emphatic declaration on God's part that God is going to make this happen, right? Even though they walk away, even though they forget, God's going to make it happen. They shall be my people. It's going to happen. And so part of love is God's insistence that he will do whatever it takes um, to be in covenant with his people, 
And so the shift that starts happening in Jeremiah is that Jeremiah starts speaking of an everlasting covenant, a new covenant. And not to retrace too much of the old ground, this is not to replace the first covenant. It's the outgrowth of this covenant. It's an extension of this covenant, right? But the first covenant, as Paul says, was written on tablets of stone. The second covenant is written on tablets of flesh, right? So the covenant on tablets of stone was not kept. That's very clear if we read scripture. It's also clear that the people understood their exile as the consequences for breaking God's covenant. And I don't even want to say as punishment, because punishment is like, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. I, I think consequences are, are better. And of course, we know that there are consequences in our life whenever we don't keep the covenant. If you don't live your life with patience and kindness and respect, there will be consequences in your life from failing to live a life that aligns with God's covenant. But even when you don't keep the covenant, God's got to figure out a way to keep his. And so he starts speaking of this everlasting covenant. And, and notice, um, I will never draw back from doing good to them. God says this in chapter 32, I will never draw back from doing good to them. I mean, you know, all these people out there who have a bad experience of the Old Testament, a bad experience of God, we need to share this verse. God says, I'm never going to draw back from doing good to you. And this is in a context where people are always drawing back from God, right? And of course, Jesus's death on, on the cross would be the ultimate example of that. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing, he says. I'm never going to draw back from doing good to them. And so the reason I uh, wanted to share this reading from 1 John is because it's not an Advent 4 reading, but it feels a little bit like a bridge because it's all about love. It's all about agape love. And it's all about that love living in us, right? But what is what is uh, Mary's pregnancy about? It's about love living in her. Jesus is love incarnate. Love literally grows inside of her. Now, I'm going to be speaking about Mary's birth. Uh, I'm sorry, Mary's pregnancy and the birth of Jesus as a larger metaphor. Please understand, I don't think it's only a metaphor. Okay, so I, I'm just going to kind of take us beyond the literal. But um, I do believe that, you know, the Virgin Mary gave birth to a real person named Jesus in a way that you will never give birth to a real person named Jesus. Okay, so uh, I don't mean to to limit this interpretation uh, to the, the spiritual archetypal symbolic, but I'm going to take us there. Okay, what happens to Mary is that love, Jesus's love. Um, is conceived inside of her, grows inside of her, and she gives birth to love. And in a sense, 1 John is saying the same thing. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, God lives in us and we give birth to that love perfectly with our life. And this love, remember, love is tied to the keeping of the covenant. And I know we're trying to tie a lot of threads here together, but it's important that we do our best. This agape love, it's tied to hesed. It's tied to the keeping of the covenant. It's tied to love inside of us. And it's tied to this idea of God sending his son. 
Uh, and this is love, not that we love God, right? Because we forget God. Jeremiah has made that very clear. We walk away from God. We boast in things other than God. So love is not that we love God. It's that he loved us. And more specifically, sent his son. A woman encompasses a man. And through that woman, a son is born to be what? An atoning sacrifice. Now, the reason I shared this is because the Greek word here is hilasterion, uh, which is a term in the New Testament um, that if you read the Greek Old Testament, uh, it's the word used for the mercy seat. So in the Old Testament, um, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, which was like the innermost part of the temple or tabernacle. Uh, he'd do this once a year, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and um, the blood of a sacrificial animal would be sprinkled on that mercy seat. And so the seat symbolized forgiveness, reconciliation, but more than anything, that seat was the place where God and humanity came together. It was the meeting place between God and humanity. And so whenever Paul says God sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, what he's basically saying is God sent himself to be the mercy seat, right? God is not giving a mercy seat. God is being a mercy seat. God is saying, the only way I'm going to keep this covenant is by becoming the place where humanity and divinity coexist. And of course, one of the core beliefs we have about Jesus, fully God, fully human. Uh, now, that's a hard concept. We'll save that for a different class, maybe. But we don't believe that <coughs> we don't believe that he was half God, half human. You know, it's not like one of the uh, Greek gods, a little bit of column, column A, a little bit of column B. He was fully God, fully human. And then we talk about this, this God man living inside of us and how love is born in and through our life as the mercy seat the place where heaven and earth meet, comes to live inside of us. And this is what happens to Mary. The angel comes to her and says, love itself, the mercy seat himself, is going to grow in your womb and you're going to give birth to a child. And that's where the Magnificat comes in. I think we read this last week, so I'm not going to reread it. But the thing I want you to know about the song of Mary and the whole my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord I don't want you to miss that this is all language celebrating that God has finally kept the covenant, right? So whenever she says he's come to the help of his servant Israel, he's remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever, what Mary is celebrating is that finally what has been spoken of in Jeremiah like actually is literally taking flesh. That 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 it's not theoretical anymore. It's not that one day there's going to be an everlasting covenant, but you know, time's ticking. You're going to give birth in nine months. He's here. Right? So so Mary is celebrating that God has kept his promise. And in keeping that promise, what is that? That's Hesed. That's love. And so God loves and God keeps his promise. How? By entering Mary. By entering Mary, by 
growing up inside of Mary and by having Mary give birth um, uh, to love itself, to God himself, right? Mary is the God bearer. Um, and so as we think about this story, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will name him Jesus. Um, God will give to him the throne of David. Again, covenantal language. How we understand it differently than David understood it. But um, this is God keeping the covenant, right? Sitting on the throne of David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This child will be holy. Uh, and uh, nothing will be impossible with God. And so I, I think as we kind of wrap this, this up, I, I think what I want to leave us with are a few things. The reason the angel says nothing is impossible with God, that the thing that's really impossible for God or that could be impossible, the miracle is not so much that a virgin gives birth to a child. I mean, we see things just as crazy in the Old Testament. I mean, uh, Abram and, and Sarah, they were 99 and 100, the Bible tells us, when they had a child. I'm not a biology uh, student, but my guess is that um, it is just as unlikely for a 99-year-old woman to give birth as it is for a virgin to give birth, right? So this isn't really the first miraculous birth that we've seen on God's part. The thing that is impossible, but that God has made possible, is how on earth God can destroy sin without destroying us, how God can keep uh, his covenant when we will do everything we can to oppose it. <laughs> you know, I mean, like at the end of the day, God became human, dwelt among us, and we nailed him to a tree. There's no getting around that, you know, that that is our story. The, the thing that the impossible, never stopping, never giving up, never quitting sort of love that we see is a God who will do anything to be faithful to the covenant, even if that means becoming a little fetus, living inside of Mary, and being born in a stable. And, you know, so this is humility. And I think what Christmas reminds us that um, that God is not acting in this way in spite of the fact that he is God, but precisely because he's God, that God is actually the most humble being in the universe, that that love is the most humble thing in the universe. I mean, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, love does not insist on its own way. Love takes the form of a fetus and, you know, goes out the birth canal and, you know, breastfeeds for a while and grows up and lives a normal life. But that's what love has to do in order to remain faithful to the promise of saving and blessing the world. And so the first covenant, the second covenant, right, all of those in Jeremiah, they are extensions of God's love. But this everlasting covenant 
that will never be broken, where God lives inside of us, we see represented with God living inside Mary. And the same thing that happened to her is to happen to us. We are to be people in whom Christ takes form and he is to be born in this world through our life. And ultimately, ultimately, that is what Jeremiah is, is leading us to. It's what Advent is leading us to. It's what Christianity is leading us to. You know, the real question is, what does it mean for Christ to grow inside of us and to be born in and through our life? Because when that starts to happen, guess what? The first fruits start growing and multiplying uh, and more people get in on the harvest.